Welcome to World Changes, a podcast exploring the trends making an enduring mark on our world of work and how business leaders, HR teams and internal communicators can stay one step ahead. It's not about more information, it's about better. The news should be there to serve democracy and help people make informed, rational decisions. But nothing grabs our attention more than sensationalised news and emotionally charged political opinions. The problem is that when political language seeps into the stories and opinions we consume, we're driven to ignore the facts and believe what we want to. The same principles apply to internal communication. In its most basic sense, it's there to serve the people and inform them about their business so they make good decisions based on a shared purpose and vision. But pay me a pound for every time I've heard that I see a spin by a fancier name and I could quit my day job. So. How do we strike a balance between the two worlds of information and entertainment and create better content for sceptical audiences that actually gets consumed? I chose this theme as my world changer for our 2022 report, and I've been banging on about it for some time now, so I'm very pleased to get into it in more detail today. Later in this episode, we chat with Ulrich Harberup, founder and CEO of the Constructive Institute. But before that, I got together with my colleagues and fellow writers, Connor Faulkner and Lucy Clapham to surface the story. Connor, Lucy, welcome to the World Changers podcast. Hello. Very excited to be here. Well, hello. How the devil are you both? (laughs) Delighted to have you both with me. And of course, it's our favourite topic, right, is is journalism. And I'm so pleased to have writers on, on the podcast today because it makes such a difference. And I hope the IC professionals listening in will not be put off by the fact that we're talking about journalism because it's totally applicable to everything we do. Um, but I do think we should start out with defining constructive journalism. So who wants to help me out here? What is it and why should we care in the world of internal comms? Hmm. Let's go on then. I'll, I'll bite at that if, if that's all right then. So from my understanding, uh, from what I've read, what I've researched and what I've been involved in beforehand, uh, in its purest form, it's about telling essentially as complete of a story as possible, warts and all but also taking, as the name suggests, a bit more of a constructive approach to the entire situation. So rather than being very much, how do we say, perpetuating the doom-scrolling glory that we all love to partake in every now and again, it's more about asking what's next or taking a chance to look back on a story and almost close the loop um, is my long-winded understanding of it. Love that. And it wasn't too long-winded. Well done. <laughs> Fantastic. I think that's I think that's a really good way of putting it, actually. And in terms of the second point, like why we should care about it in IC, I see it as a chance to provide sort of bad news as well as good. Like, I think sometimes the problem is in that you, you feel that IC, it constantly has to be positive. It always mm-hmm. has to be good news that we're telling people. But, you know people are adults they can they can deal with bad news and I think if you've got both sides of the story you can make a more informed decision on stuff and that's part of what constructive journalism is as well isn't it it's giving people that wider picture and that sort of thing absolutely so, yeah. and there is nothing more that colleagues turn off at at puff journalism mm-hmm. cracking definition both of you thank you so much and I think it's important that we sort of think about some of these topics that we could cover in constructive journalism, right? Because sustainability is massively important. Engaging audiences across those different divides of class and race and gender and finding what really connects people is important. 
But how do we do it without sounding kind of overly worthy or patronising or at the opposite end of the spectrum, polarising and antagonistic? It's strange because one of the main uh, examples that's rolled out when you talk about constructive journalism is kind of climate change and how, you know, saying the world is ending, everything is terrible, we're all doomed, is kind of the exact thing that it's trying to solve inherently, as it were. So... It's kind of about taking, in my experience at least, a lot of the lessons from it and applying it directly to that. So when you say about sustainability as an example, engaging the audience across different divides, it's kind of a case of putting those actions into practice, really, without actually being too, you know, up in the air and not giving you an example. I'd say that in my experience, it's always about having the diversity of voices in what you do. So whether it's a case of giving you another example, if it's let's say a big strategy piece that's outlined in the next 10 years for a company, it's not just the head honchos telling you how it is and you will like that and be grateful, dear colleague. It's more about the, um, you know, getting the line managers involved and saying what it means to them and cascading it down to the colleagues and also getting colleague perspective on what they think about it as well. It's um, not just about representation almost. It's a way to make everyone feel considered. And, uh, you know, I, I always find that that is inducive to enabling actual change rather than just you know telling people what it should be because they are at the beating heart right of getting some of this stuff done yes it might be the big corporate organizations who've got the money to help us fix climate change but they've also got an absolute powerhouse of people that they can they can tap into their belief system and and help change the world for the better with this stuff Definitely. I, I think I, I really agree with what Connor's saying about like, let's, um, you know, loop in everyone. It, it shouldn't be top down so much because they're the people who are going to make the change like you were just saying. Elle. And also, I think when it comes to something like sustainability and climate change, it's a, it's a scary topic. But I think if you can give people sort of tangible real world examples of how they can help, what they can do, even those those little differences, then it it breaks it down a little bit, makes it a little bit more easy to sort of deal with doesn't become this big huge overwhelming thing and you know if you're giving people ideas of how they can do little things that make a big difference but also it's not just you know I've, I've written down here you know like people are always saying we've got plans to do this but it's like show don't tell so let's show people what we're doing to help the environment sort of thing and then they can go away and feel energized to do it themselves and I think the other thing I'd just say about around this point is that how we can engage and not be patronising that sort of thing. I think a lot of truth and honesty need, needs to come into it. Mm-hmm. Let's just be honest and open about what we're doing. Admit if there's difficulties or, or, or where we might have made a mistake or done something wrong, but then how we're going to correct it. Yes, I'm Lucy. I'm a bit there, but... I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and I really like the point on not sounding overly worthy or patronising. And I think part of that honesty, right, is having the ballsy enough people in the business to do that. I've been working with a client recently who did a response to COP26. And kind of as, as the chief sustainability person in the organisation, they had things to say. They were disappointed in what happened. And they also wanted to talk about holistically how some of the solutions and focusing on the, the drive to 1.5, mm. as I think I might have heard it called in disgusting corporate language. <laughs> it's so true, right? And yeah, basically, they were saying, yeah, fine. Drive to 1.5, sure, it's a, it's a good thing to do. But holistically, we look at the whole problem and like think about 
the communities and the agriculture or job opportunities that we're taking off them and really think about how we can how we can better support them um, with all this and it it was just a very honest and interesting interview and it really caused a bit of stir in the organization and the other people I spoke to about this story were like oh she was brave no she was bloody brilliant she was fantastic she was being a constructive journalist right there <laughs> it was great I think there's another part of it going back to what you were saying Lucy as well is that it, and well, what both of you were saying really is that part of it is if you've got a massive topic like this, you first of all you need someone who's willing to agitate and stir things up a little bit. Um, but there's also that element of translating it to what it means to colleagues as well, because part of the problem that, in my experience, constructive journalism is trying to solve is that it's getting rid of that massive information, the doom and gloom, and and boiling it down into here's what you need to know and let's not be so pessimistic about it, shall we? Very rich coming from me, I appreciate nonetheless. But in doing so, it's very much remembering the the best practice principles of what we do and kind of saying, yes, so this is the top line. This is everything you need to know. And you as a colleague, if there is one takeaway, uh, it is know this about our environmental policy or, you know, Put, put the right stuff in the right bins. It's not that hard, is it? <laughs> yeah, but, and, and that's exactly it. And, and that kind of applies for, you know, maybe not just sort of the whole sustainability and, and climate change thing that everyone needs to be caring about. It's, it's kind of like any comms that we're putting out there is taking that step back and remembering. It's like, well, and those principles, it's like, well, what are we saying and, and what do we want you to do? Just breaking it down into those, into those basics and, and not, you know, having all that massive informational jargon. Let's not start talking about jargon, you know, and, and acronyms and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's it's a it's a good lesson for anything that we're doing. Completely. I hate to use kind of youth speak, but if we could put a TLDR too long didn't read on every single story that we write and get clients to appreciate the value of a one-line summary of every story and the value that that brings to colleagues in the organisation, we'd be doing some really good work. But also, I do understand that TLDR is is a youthful acronym and we should probably come up with something that people can understand a bit better, although I don't know if I could do that on the spot right now. In a nutshell? Yes! In a nutshell, there we go. Every story should happen in a nutshell. I think, you've mentioned TLDR about three times now. We're in too deep. Let's just stick with it and see what happens, (laughs) quite frankly. Now, I want to quote you something. Um, Tell me what you think about this line. If nobody gets angry, it's not journalism, it's advertising. I'd kind of almost instinctively, I'd just sort of say no, because... Journalism essentially, and again, what we're talking about, constructive journalism, is that journalism is there to inform. It's there to tell you what's happened, you know. And if you look at papers from way back when, that's what they did, but obviously in a really much, much wordier way of doing it. And obviously, as things have progressed, things have got shorter. Our attention spans have got shorter, so we've had to become more sensationalist to sort of mm. grab, grab your attention, and even more now, you know, when we've got so many different things distracting us. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I don't, when I was a journalist, I didn't want to write stories that made people angry. So, Absolutely not. So I would sort of, no, you you perhaps want a reaction, but I don't think you want you want anger. And, and that's exactly the kind of point that I was making in, in the report, is that we're not seeking outrage, and certainly not in internal comms. 
But one of the worst outcomes that we would get would be a lack of authenticity, leading to colleagues losing trust in what we're saying, right? So I really want to talk about the power of colleague opinion. And I come from a business in the past where colleague opinion was our bread and butter, perhaps sometimes to our own detriment, and sometimes not getting the work done that was needed. But actually, when does it work brilliantly? And then I'll give you my example of when it can stifle progress. (laughs) I think it can work brilliantly when we're not subject matter experts, Mm -hmm. particularly when we're talking about something you work on a lot, which is like DNI, that we all work on a lot now. You know, DNI is really coming to the fore a lot more. And I think with those subjects, um, you know, it might be that that it's a subject that you don't know that much about. Mm -hmm. So let's not try and, you know, we can do a bit of research, but let's not try and write it as if we know it inside out. Let's go to the people in our organisation who are living those experiences and they can talk with real authority and real sort of truth and and, and passion and experience and that will come through in a story or or our cons which will make it more authentic, which will make it more engaging and will help the rest of our audience understand and that's ultimately what we want from that sort of cons. So I'd say that's that's when I'd always want to reach out to a workforce for that sort of subject. I love that. And I do think that, you know, any interview that's held via email is no form of interview. No, totally agree. Connor, any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, essentially, for the sake of brevity, agree with everything that Lucy has said there. But also, I can expand on that point as well. Um, so firstly, with that quote that you mentioned, I would love to know, do you know who it's from? Actually, I do. And would you believe it's our guest at the tail end of this episode, Ulrich Hagerup, um, for the CEO of the Constructive Institute. And he was using it to um, kind of put a pin in people's ideas about what journalism really was and kind of turning it on its head and, and saying that, you know, that's the way it was in the past. But actually, there is a more constructive solution. Love that guy. <laughs> I was I was going to say the quote I would massively disagree with at first. I feel like, no no disrespect to anyone that's probably the case if you're working for a tabloid i won't mention any particular one of course but that there is an element of there needs to be some kind of emotion that's that's provoked in what we do so a lot of the content i'm doing at the moment um always revolves around kind of a bit of a pride piece so whether it's uh let's say whatever company i'm writing for it is always a sense of accomplishment here's the great work that colleagues have done that's always the the go-to emotion that i try and provoke that being said, I would rather anger and upset than absolute apathy and, you know, feeling nothing at all whatsoever. In regards to the power of colleague opinion, I always find that it's best as well when someone is being relatively vulnerable and open to feedback. So to give you an example, there have been how many times when we've done uh, an enterprise social network, so it'd be Yammer or Workplace or variants of teams for various companies here, there and everywhere. And the best way that you can kind of harness that colleague voice is by blunt, ruthless and sometimes a little bit hurtful feedback. So whether it, let's say you're posting your story that has been repurposed from a traditional channel and saying, hey guys, we want, what do you think? Or even if it's a space on that kind of platform to say, vent here, this is your place to have a moan, have a whinge. And then the the way that that becomes really powerful is when colleague, well, when companies kind of say, all right then, we, we hear you. And not only that, we're also going to show you why that's not the case and what we're doing to fix it as well. And I think in times like that, that's where it becomes really empowering. And 
not only useful to colleagues who are, you know, getting things off the chest, but also the, the company question as well. Um, I actually really want to talk about tone and type because we're, we're all writers here and we're all mad at consumption uh, experts, I suppose, and are eagerly consuming different types of content. What do you really enjoy consuming? And then what do you think kind of your readers and audiences want to read and what, what turns them on these days? Personally, I do want a bit more sort of honesty and truth and less of the sensationalism. However, on the flip side, I'll always appreciate quite a clever or a funny pun headline <laughs> or strap or something like that that's going to hook me in. And I'm not saying I'm an avid reader by any stretch, but The Sun does do some excellent headlines whilst I'm not sort of always agreeing with their content. But it's that sort of thing will always lure me in. Mm. But then it's done that job. It's done its job of doing that. But then if I really want to actually find out about a subject, I'm not going to go to those kind of publications and I do like getting lost in a bit of long-form journalism. Mm. The Guardian does some great stuff. And I really love um, the BBC that does its stuff. You know, there's really lovely scrolly ones with the pictures that oh, come up. You can just get lost for like an hour. And I really I, I really like that. So that's the kind of stuff I like to see. And it, it, it does give you all the background and all the, the what's and the why's and, and the real sort of delving into the history and, mm. and just telling you something you didn't know, maybe, totally. about, about a subject. I um, I steal all my puns from Waitrose Weekend magazine. I don't know if anybody <laughs> has. Yes, I like that as well. I'm such a fan. They had one um, months ago that I can't, I can't stop quoting to people because I thought it was so bloody good. It was a pun about um, a group of lettuce pickers and the title of the article was So Salad Crew. Fantastic. Conman, what do you think? Pun's your thing? I, I think that you can't give away industry secrets by revealing sources from the Waitrose Weekender, but who am I? You, you've said it now. So lately going to my nearest Waitrose this weekend uh, <laughs> to source lots of ideas for next week's writing. <laughs> What's Absolutely. the kind of content that you consume then, Connor? I um, quite shamelessly flick between pithy Twitter hot takes with no background or, or, or you know, honesty to them. And then stuff like uh, the, the main go to at the minute is delayed gratification, purely because I'm still, as you guys both know, I'm still a sucker for a printed magazine and all the nostalgia and, and whatnot that that brings with it. I always find that I keep having to check myself when I'm looking at said Twitter hot takes when... The entire point of of constructive journalism as an idea is that why would you not go to said social media sites and tabloids and people who are churning out fake news and and said hot takes at a at a worrying degree because it's just that easy, isn't it? So I find myself torn between doing that out of convenience and like you say, Lucy, a funny headline that that snares me in, and then I have to check myself and say, no, come on. Stay away from this. And then, yeah, and then trying to strive for longer form, you know, more considered evergreen journalism as well. So yeah, it's a bit a bit of an odd dichotomy that I'm in at the moment. No, I, I completely understand it. And I'm, I'm so turned off personally by news headlines at the moment. I actually can't deal. So I don't, I don't subscribe to any notifications or anything like that. If I want news, I will probably go to Radio 4 Today's programme in the morning because that'll give me what I need with an informed take. But I'm not really turning to news anymore. I want a long read. I want a considered space with enough white space 
to think about what I'm reading about and I'll consume less but better. So I love Guardian Weekend. Uh, there was a brilliant long read in there about a, a guy the other week who was living with a deer in the forest in France and I lapped up that article. It took me about 15 minutes to read but I just couldn't take my eyes off it. I loved the print. There was some amazing photography in there and different. I noticed there were different headlines in the print magazine to the online version and it was a more kind of compelling print read headline. They're so clever the way they think about their different audiences and how they consume. But the other place I'm really enjoying at the moment is Substack where it's just a, a kind of, it's a new email platform I suppose where Rather than you going on a constant deep scroll in through social media, you get um, something that's sent to your inbox. And there are some great creators on there. There's, um, there's a lady who I'm speaking to later on this month on a panel we're on for Staff Base called Beth Collier, who's, who's got a substack called Curious Minds, which is just each week she takes something that she's curious about and she unpicks it. And so the other week um, I was reading one she did on the people who were the signal operators of the Titanic. Amazing story. And just that's the sort of stuff I want to read about because the news is so flipping scary at the moment that I actually... I can't tune in. And I wouldn't be surprised if our audiences are feeling the same way. And that's where I think constructive journalism comes in, like the shift in tone that is towards a kind of more, it's not spin, it's not positivity, but more pragmatic Mm. next steps on what people can take. I just, yeah, I'm a big fan of this style of writing. And I think I, I I wouldn't be misplaced in saying that a lot of our audiences are cresting this wave now. Agree. I think if you're looking at constructive um, journalism piece and it sort of is presenting, you know, the problems and it's and it's and, you know, it's acknowledging that there's 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 bad stuff out there or something, but it's not leaving you like maybe a tradition, a more traditional sort of news story might and just going, oh, God, we're all doomed. You know, it's giving you, you know, a call to action or it's giving you something that you can it's giving you that hope at the end of the tunnel or it's giving you a conclusion as it were it's giving you something mm. that you can do or something that, that you can look to mm. and you know call to actions are the things that we're always trying to shove into our to our comms so yeah absolutely so it, it's another sort of parallel i guess between ic and constructive journalism and and that's where really great planning can come in and be your best friend because so often in in an RIC audience listening in might be thinking like breaking news and comes this out now and feeling really stressed about the amount of pressure that gets put on them actually thinking about how you plan out and theme your your calendar for the year I, I talk about it all the time with my clients and really think about how how can you plan out your year in a way that means that you can say no to things because you have different slots of the year allocated to certain topics and themes? Are you kind of experiencing that with your clients where you're feeling like more pragmatic planning leads to better quality content that audiences actually want to consume? Absolutely. I think the problem is that everyone that I work with is lovely and inherently a people pleaser, so it makes it very, very hard to say no to those Oh my God, we need to know about this straight away. But yeah, I'm, I'm finding that even from, from my own perspective, selfishly as the person who's writing a lot of these comps, it's a case of just having the time to plan a little bit better. And when it comes to the actual interview and the write-up, time for everyone to not go at a pace. There's no pressure on the actual review process, but also in terms of giving you time to think. So rather than it just being a quick, traditional 300-word article, with a signpost, as we've all been saying, to another platform or channel. 
it gives you the time to think about other ways to approach it. So whether it's a different content treatment, whether it's something a bit more lighthearted, whether it's something that's specialised and tailored to socials, for example. The thing I'm trying to say at the moment is that, you know, for the love of God, plan ahead. I'm hope, aiming to get to the point where half of the content that I'm doing with clients that I'm working with at the moment is either planned or evergreen things to to keep in the in the story bank, as it were, and deploy when needed. Dreaming. Yeah, no, I agree as well, because I, and I think the planning is is definitely important. And let's try and be, I mean, there is still a bit of knee jerk, isn't there? But I think when we're that reactive, it it can be cons overload, surely, mm. you know, and, and Connie, you were saying early, let's earlier, let's just take a step back. And I think this can be applied here. Let's just take a take a step back and think, oh, that has happened in the world or whatever, do we need to communicate to that to our people? Surely they they might there's gonna be other ways that they're gonna find that out. Mm. Does it really relate? Is it important? Because I, I I worry about comms overload for some of my clients. I put myself into into sort of their workforce issues and I'm and I think, goodness, if that came into my inbox, I don't know whether I'd really read that. I don't know how relevant that is to mm. me. And mm. I think that's yeah, that's def- definitely something to consider. So yeah planning is 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 a luxury it gives us the space to breathe and ultimately it gives us it gives us the time to give us do our stories justice and mm. give them the treatment they deserve especially if it's you know a wonderful personal piece or something like that someone's personal story oh really nice and those are the ones that you want to click through and spend the time on and read or you might actually leave it unread and you'll come back to it later but you know you want to because you trust the source and that's what it's all about (laughs) (laughs) um okay so like apart from apart from a trusted source and apart from the tone that we use what other principles of constructive journalism can we use to really better serve our audiences i think a big part of it, going back to what you were saying, Lucy, on uh, the potential for comms overload, as it were, is that if you can't plan and you're, you're having, you know, necessary knee-jerk reactions to producing content and getting comms out there, it's the case of sharing what you can and promising to go back. Audiences would rather be told that there's no news than be left guessing at all. And that's the thing I think some people in the middle they're kind of they're realizing that there's no silver bullet and they're wanting to move towards this kind of best practice which sometimes leads to people not deploying you straight away but also waiting for a development that never comes so it's kind of the, the worst of both worlds almost i'd just say even if it's a single sentence on whatever platform it is get that out there with a promise to return to it later and if there's no news then that's a you know it's a little com- a little edit to the end of it saying Yep, nothing's changed. Don't worry, take this off your radar. S- simple as that, quite frankly. I'd say it's it's the stuff we've talked, we've 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 all sort of touched on in the course of the conversation. Is that um, let's use constructive journalism as a way to maybe be a little bit braver mm-hmm. and be truthful, honest, and open. Because I think certainly, I see that needs to come through in everything we're doing. Because otherwise, it's it's so easy to be like, oh, that's corporate propaganda. Blah, I'm just going to ignore that, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and the other thing we can learn from it is let's not be too scared to present both sides of the story. And if and if there is some bad news, then let's just, you know, hold our hands up and and tell people the truth about it as as much as we possibly can, sort of thing, or as much as we can share with them, depending on what it is, sort of thing, because they'll appreciate that. And they will already know that something else has gone off. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> 
and you know, people, exactly. we, yeah, people know if something's up, if you know yeah. something's looming. So it's like you know, I think about those those poor people at P and O. Mm. They must have known something was coming down the line, mm. and the way it did was horrendous mm-hmm. um and it could have been handled so much better but you know people aren't stupid they know when something's happening so let's just address it head on and be like right look you've probably got an idea this is it this is how it stands this mm-hmm. is you know x y and z this is how things are it's bad it's not good but this is what we're going to do to correct it sort of in the short term or, mm-hmm. or, or make it better as, as much as we can but we have got medium and long term or whatever we're working on it La, 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 we don't have all the answers right now, but this is what we can tell you sort of. And that's what Monzo did so well in the pandemic and in terms of like redeploying their workforce when they knew that redundancies were coming up, being super honest and actually touting out their people and saying, are you looking for somebody with this skill or that skill and having that, that uh, sort of skills database of their people who were unfortunately going to be made redundant and look how well they've done since then. Amazing company. My, my last sort of takeaway and for any internal communicator listening to to this please please give this a go in your comms would be change your when because every single IC story I read well most of them tragically starts with last week this happened or recently this happened and actually nobody cares about when nobody cares when something happened what they do care maybe is what happened if it's important enough they more care about why it happened and what's next? And those are those constructive journalism principles that will, you know, you'll do you'll do really well with those. Trust me, I promise. This is years of experience and learning learning about what audiences really want. We all want to know why something happened. It's the why, and it's it's what are we going to do about it? What's the solution? Or if we don't know the solution, let's talk about it. Let's ask. Let's open it up. It it makes such a difference to colleague communications. And um, I challenge every IC person listening to this today to give it a go in their next internal com story tomorrow. <laughs> Well, guys, it's been absolutely brilliant catching up on this today. And I feel like we've had a really thorough conversation on constructive journalism. And I actually can't wait for my next interview with Ulrich, which is tomorrow, to really dig into the external inspiration behind this topic. But thank you for your time. I appreciate it and your wisdom and uh, your honesty. And uh, we'll catch up soon, no doubt. Has been super. Thank you very much. See you in five minutes, guys. Take care. Forgive me while I gush because honestly, Ulrich Hargrup is a real hero of mine. I first encountered him at 24 Hours for the Future of Journalism, a virtual conference responding to increasing tabloidization, sensationalism and negativity bias in the news media. With such highlights as possibilities for journalism in a polarised world and how to cover climate change constructively, how could I not be hooked? It changed my thinking and I hope some of the things we talk about today will change yours too. Ulrich cut his teeth as an investigative reporter and worked his way up to executive director of news at Denmark's public service broadcaster. He also won the Danish version of the Pulitzer, the Carveling Prize. And as CEO of the Constructive Institute, he's the champion of a new approach to news media. And I couldn't be more delighted to welcome him to our podcast. Ulrich, welcome. Thank you for joining me. I'm very pleased. So you've just returned from the International Journalism Conference in Perugia. What were you doing there? How was the, how was the mood and the appetite from the audience? I was, uh, first of all, catching corona. And if 
infecting my whole family coming back. But besides that, <laughs> it was it was really good also because for first time in two years, people were able to uh, meet in the physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides the infection part, it was it was really great. I, I think the industry really needs that. Zoom meetings can do a lot of things, but it's not very good for creativity. Uh, you need to, to be in the same room and, and feel that. We did a few panels down there, and uh, one that I was hosting was about how do we become moderators of the public conversation in journalism? How do news media avoid digging the ditches deeper in the public conversation, which uh, I'm afraid to say that we, we often do? Mm-hmm. Uh, why we Why do we always... Uh, use metaphors or mindsets from either warfare or boxing when we invite people in to have a conversation about the future. We call it debates. That's a French word. It means uh, it's debattre in French and it means fighting. Why was that? Why do we think it has to be a fight in order to be uh, journalistic? And we call it duels, we call it crossfire, and we talk about red corner, blue corner, winners, losers. Um, but what about solutions? So we had three examples. And stop me if I'm babbling along here, but I'm really, it was really interesting. We, we, we've been working with a lot of newsrooms and uh, we brought three of them uh, with us, three editors who had been trying to deal with the facts when they asked their viewers about political debates. All viewers said, we are sick and tired of politicians yelling and interrupting each other all the time. Couldn't, could they start doing something else? For instance, talking about how they want to solve our problems. Mm. which is the reason why we elect politicians. So all these newsrooms were very surprised because uh, that was all they did. They were orchestrating fights. Uh, but, okay, they they asked that if we could help them uh, find new ways of doing it. SVT in Sweden presented a new way of doing hearings and, and, and public uh, uh, the dialogue programs on the, on the, on the national TV. And uh, what they could uh, tell was there were not just as many viewers as the traditional fighting, but almost, but the reactions, both from politicians and viewers and Swedes, were so much more positive. The debate after was not hateful, it was not accusational, it was uh, appraisal, it was people following up on each other's ideas. So if you ask politicians to talk about ideas, politicians think that's great because that was the reason why I became a politician and people want that. So if we orchestrate it, it is possible. So that was one example. The other example from Norway, the public service company in Norway, NRK, and they came to us and said, what do you, what can we do? Uh, and uh, it turned out that what we could do was thinking about when is a political debate, when, when is the conversation between politicians disagreeing most interesting? Mm. And what we found was, that the most interesting thing was actually when they were um, sitting in the makeup before going into the studio. There they were talking together, and it was really interesting listening to them. The, the, the editors and journalists at the debate program said, but the moment they entered the studio and the little red dot of the camera started, they spoke like plastic. <laughs> they tried to remember the hotliners. They were being taught by other journalists called spin doctors how to nail the others, and it became terrible. The solution of that was they took out the news host. They took it out of the studio. They started having a conversation in the garage. Ooh, like that. Mm. Which was really fascinating. And the last one was a Danish uh, TV station, Regent's TV station. And they invented, with our little help, a program called Solved or Squeezed, 
mm-hmm. where politicians up to a local election go into a studio and the clock start ticking down from 20 minutes and a voice will tell them thank you for coming and participating in this experiment you now have 20 minutes to solve the problem which is important for the citizens in your city for which you want to be elected but for four years you haven't been able to agree on a solution to this but now you have 20 minutes and if you succeed you have won the game if you don't you have lost and there's a punishment in this case the punishment is that you have to collect garbage on the beaches uh, for eight hours together or you have to work voluntarily at the local nursery home for 24 hours or something like that. And then the clock starts ticking down. The interesting thing is uh, we change the incentive structures in other ways as well, because now we ask them to come up with a solution together with others, and we appraise them for that. And we pressure them not only on time, but every five minutes, the walls of the studio gets narrower and narrower. So after, when they have five minutes left, they stand so close, they have to touch each other. And what happened was we created 10 programs and in eight out of 10, they succeeded in 20 minutes coming up with some concrete solutions to problems people have, which they haven't been able to do for four years. Wow. Much to their surprise, viewers loved it because it was interesting, it was entertaining. And there was also on the screen, they could see the news anger in the screen together with a mediator, just like if it was a sports game. Mm-hmm. So you have the expert, you have the mediator telling you, watch, watch how she's standing, who takes the pen, now watch this, this is trouble, and now they're moving somewhere. So you also learn a lot about debates and posture and arguments, and the politicians loved it, which was interesting. Seventy. Mm. 70- 37 out of 40 politicians, three of them said this was okay. 37 of them said this is the most interesting thing we have ever done. Because suddenly, this is the reason why I, I choose to go into public office, solving people's problems with other people. But normally, out in reality, I'm getting appraisal for doing the opposite. Yelling, shouting, attacking the other person, because that's how politics have turned into, and I hate it. But now I'm in this environment, and in 20 minutes we did it. And that's amazing, and I love it. And we just, and the TV station now has started following up on all these ideas, and it suddenly it turns out it, it's working. And of course, if they're not doing it, they'll do critical stories about it. But a lot of the stories they do now are very inspirational. And other cities say, wow, you did that? Well, we can do that as well. So journalism can change something. That was the longest answer to a question ever. But sorry, I was carried away. I loved it. And I love the concept of the room shrinking and and kind of internalizing that pressure to get something sorted and done. It's brilliant. I guess you've been you've been in this industry for such a long time and you've looked into the research and the data behind constructive journalism and why news audiences are changing. What does it make you feel like to see the proof in the pudding in something like that, a really positive test case happening? I get goosebumps each time, actually. I, I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating when you, can, when, you can see, when you can see a journalist who maybe in the eyes of others and sometimes also in her own, is a bit burned out, a bit yeah. frustrated. This was not the reason why I went into this profession. I'm just sitting here being measured all the time on clicks and views and KPIs and 
Um, I have had to do more and more stories, I've had less and less time to do it, and I really don't think it's fun. And I, if I was off duty, I wouldn't read my own story. You, you, you have conversation with journalists like that, and when they realize old and very young journalists thinking, "Wow, there's another way of doing doing journalism. Mm-hmm. It's not about stopping controlling power. It's not stopping being critical, but it's being critical." It being critical as a tool, but not as the goal itself. We we have to uncover problems, but why do we do that? We do that in order to generate a conversation about how to fix it, right? And we have forgotten the last part. And if you realize that, you can't be constructive unless there's a well-documented problem to be constructive about. This is not an adversary to being critical or investigative. It builds on it. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, you stop only producing stories about fightings and things that have gone bad. But you take it one step further and ask, now what and how? How can we do that? And when journalists realize this is actually fantastic working with this, and when they realize that audience really love it, and it's not only good for self-esteem, but also good for bottom line, the CFO of the company starts loving it too, and then things start to move fast. And that's what we're seeing now. I feel like I feel like it's like you know that you have the Heinz ketchup bottle and you try to hit get something out of the bottle and you hit it and suddenly it all comes out and it sometimes it's a bit messy but it all comes out at once and yeah. we are on the brink of doing that people can see this is actually working and this is the new role of journalism or, or the old role of journalism which we might have forgotten right yeah it's exciting. You talked a little bit before about the language that journalists are used to using that's quite combative. Are you finding tone shifts now in this new world of constructive journalism? Is, is a tone shift necessary? Yeah, it was, it was fun. I was at a conference yesterday and a very, very bright, hard-hitting investigative reporter uh, approached me and said, I think you, you were right, actually. And, and they were doing an investigative story about something. And then they said, Normally, we would just call the minister and say, what the hell, why haven't you changed that? Being very aggressive. Mm. And he said, each time we do that, what happens is they, they don't want to answer. They put in a, I mean, if, if we stand there with a knife mm-hmm. in disguise as a microphone, what happens is that people either run away, hide, or they attack back. So it's a fight. Or they hire somebody to put in front of them, which is a communication person. So the, the, the communication is very blurry. So we said, and this was his explanation uh, yesterday, he said, now we did something different. We just asked them to read the article and said, what does that make you think? Mm-hmm. What do you think about it? And suddenly they didn't feel threatened because it was not an accusation. It was, this is what we found out. This is the problem. What do you think about it? What, what's your thoughts? And what they found was, this is appalling. We have to do something about it. And now they started changing the legislation, which they would never have done if we had had the different approach. So it's about a mindset. It's not stopping being documenting wrongdoings in, in society. We have to do that. But we do it for a purpose, mainly having a discussion on how that could be fixed and not thinking that we should decide how should it be fixed, because that's not journalism, that's politics or act- activism. Mm. So just an example, I mean, the, the tone, when people realize that, the tone shifts. And if I ask you questions in a different tone, I 
your answers will be different. Mm. And that's what I found. I can't change other people. But if I try to change myself and the way I see things and do things, which is really difficult, that changes people's reactions to what I'm asking or what I'm doing. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. Definitely. And when it comes to um, journalism, and, and you'll know this, but with, with more recent journalism, you know, noise has been incredibly prevalent across the pandemic and beyond. And I personally am switching off the, to the noise now. I want to take a more reflective read or, or listen. And I know that you've been working on evidence with this at the Constructive Institute. Are you finding that other readers are, are responding in the same way as me, that they're, they're turned off from noise and they want to hear more truth? Yeah, I mean, and we have, we have of course, talked to a lot of people and we have done surveys about it. And, and it, it's, it's basically the same thing in, in all democracies. Really? Um, especially two groups are sick and tired of tired of the narrative where we where we basically just turn off the volume in order to get attention, right? And and it's young people and it's women. Young people, we have lost them completely. They don't want to spend their time on uh, this narrative. They don't want to have their kids watch it, or read it. They they move their attention to to something else. And it's not because people don't want to get informed or because they don't want to be disconnected from society, which sometimes is the result. But they're just overwhelmed. They're sick and tired of it. They get full of apathy or they get this feeling that the world is going under and it's too much. Mm -hmm. So they just the, the, the solution for a lot of people, use avoidance is a big thing, right? They just say, no, I stop. And the biggest change in my career, I think, has been and the most scary thing has been that is it has become socially acceptable among people everywhere to say i've stopped following news mm. i don't want to do it anymore mm. just a few years ago people would have looked at you and said are you crazy it's it's the essence of being a decent citizen mm. and but now it's okay it's okay because everybody feels there's something wrong and i understand why you don't want to do it mm. so podcast is a big thing why is that because it's longer formats people can talk and they and, and people can concentrate and at the same time doing something else people want to read stories about people who are passionate about something uh, where there are nuances so just like in the restaurant business where the fast food movement uh, led to a point where the beef couldn't and burgers couldn't be cheaper faster or thinner mm -hmm. then the reaction was chef saying we need to do something different we need to we need to slow down the pace mm -hmm. we need to give people good food general ingredients we have to be transparent so you can see how the food is prepared mm -hmm. we need to be passionate about telling stories about it and we want to give people a unique experience so they'll shut off their phone and concentrate and and that is not only for the elite anymore that is that has changed the, the restaurant scene and uh, i think we're about to see the same thing in, in journalism when i when i speak to newsrooms and i just did a workshop for the times in london and asking them if you go down here on london bridge and stop the first person you meet and say excuse me ma'am do you need more news in your life what do you think they will say and if you say uh do you need faster news then what do you think they'll say or do you need more information in your life what do you think they will say or do you think, do you, do you want to watch more politicians yelling at TV or in our paper? What do you think they'll say? And we, we know what they will say. They will say, no, thanks. I don't need more. I need better. Mm. No, thanks. I don't need faster, but I need something I can trust. And no, thank you. I don't need information, but I need somebody to clean up the mess because I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to 
believe and what to pick and what's new and what's old and what's important and what's not and all that. So we, we basically know about that, all of us. But we are so stressful because we have deadlines all the time that we just continue doing what we normally do. And if we do, we get the same results. We always gotten those results are not very good. So yes, we need to change. So who who are the real kind of agitators making this change happen? Like you say, it's sort of been untested until it's tested, until somebody takes a punt on doing this. Who Who's at the heart of driving this? I think basically the next generation, but they, they need help. Yeah. Because um, a lot of them don't want to go into journalism because they don't they don't like what they see. And if they are, they only survive if they if they become very cynical. But the moment they realize that there's there's another way of using storytelling to do good, uh, and it's not about doing North Korean version of journalism where you ignore problems and paint the sky blue, even though it's gray and rainy. And when they when they get that they start talking to each other, they start doing it, and they start advocating for it. And they ask uh, their teachers at journalism schools, why the hell do you teach us all the time that we have to find the conflict before it's a story? Why is that? Um, so it has to start from somewhere, but, but they need a language. We all need a language for it. And that's why we invented the word constructive journalism, which is just a word, right? But it means having a beneficial purpose and hasn't all journalism, isn't, isn't that crazy? No, because truth is not all journalism has a beneficial purpose. It is just trying to get your attention and make money. Uh, so, so it's not. So, but now we have a word. Now we can talk about it mm-hmm. and we can define it and what's not, what is. And I think that's that's the best. If we've done one thing good is that we have created a common vocabulary for quality journalism, mm-hmm. which we haven't had before. Impressive. Did this kind of start in Europe? Is it being adopted across the world? It is being called a mega trend in news. We get requests from Colombia, Brazil, Indonesia, Mexico. We've been working, we just came back from uh, from Nairobi, talking to uh, Kenyan editors and journalists. We have been working in uh, London, we've been working in the Balkans, and a few years ago we were in Ukraine. Could have been good if we had been in Russia as well. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainian war really shows all of us what happens when journalism is not allowed to do its thing, mm-hmm. um, and when censorship sets in. But that's an—it's not a different story, but it's an it's important story. And the storytelling is more important in that war than tanks and mm-hmm. missiles, right? Mm-hmm. Just to remind ourselves about the power of, of journalism. Yes, I think it is uh, spreading. It's, it's, uh, I, I think around 80, 70, 80% of newsroom in Denmark have now adopted it. Uh, we've signed a few deals with a new uh, chains of news organizations. The public service companies in Northern Europe, at least, have adopted it. That's growing interest, but the culture is very strong in newsrooms. So even though the editor thing is great, the news editors were appointed because they were good at the old stuff, right? So that's what we call the Rockwell layer between management and uh, and and the newsrooms. No, we haven't revolutionized everything. Um, is there potential to do so? I think so. Amazing. I wanted to ask you if anything's really surprised you since you've been following this new path of constructive journalism, but some of the things you've told me already have kind of blown me away, some of the ideas and the creativity. Is there anything that's really kind of amazed you? I think it was Victor Hugo who once said, nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. And I think the idea of 
And, and at the time when everybody can tell every story to everybody all the time from anywhere and do so, people might think that there's no need for journalism anymore. I think deeply that there's never been a more need for curated storytelling based on certain values. Because if it's not there, who should inform the public? Just imagine, and that's that's not a theoretical question. I mean, news deserts are spreading everywhere, right? Mm. Big areas, millions of people where there's not one single independent journalism journalist left to tell the rest of them what's really going on. Could we then hope that Facebook would do the thing for us? Could we hope that Greenpeace would do it? Industry, political parties themselves? And we know, no, it will not. It, it's not really. Journalism is there for a reason, and it's so important. And Russia is a groom example of what happens when journalism ceases to exist. Mm. But the idea that journalism is just a product to be sold, and we use the business school logic to, to get the attention of people, no matter what, and we can now measure, if you click on this, you'll get more of that. That algorithm thinking going into newsrooms combined with business school logic has diverted the direction of journalism for the last decade or so. And it's destroying not only journalism, but it's destroying democracy if we do it wrongly. There's a lot of great journalism out there still, luckily. But but we're talking broad terms here, the front page version. Mm. We we. Journalism is part of the problem, and we have to be part of the solution. And uh, the quote from Victor Hugo about the power of good ideas is that when people realize that journalism can be like this as well, not only people doing it, but people following and say, this is, this is what I want. This is enlightening me, it's provoking me, it's engaging me, questioning me, it's opening the world to me instead of just scaring me. Then they can see that journalism has a purpose and people in journalism can go to work every day and say, ah, this is actually the reason why I choose this and didn't become a lawyer. Exactly, and maybe make some real change happen in the world, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, I've come to my last question, Ulrich. It's something I ask all of my guests. Thinking about the people making the biggest impact in the world right now, who would you nominate as your world changer for 2022? Zelensky. Brilliant answer. <laughs> Brilliant answer. I couldn't agree more. Why? I mean, because if, if a, a big consultant, leadership consultant, he many years ago he explained to me that the differences between management and leadership is that there's far too many managers in the world and too few leaders. And leadership is something completely different. Leadership is creating the future by providing innovation and hope. And what Zelensky is showing in Ukraine, saying, I don't want a lift out, I need ammunition. Staying put, being on the front line, using words and storytelling is, um, and you can, even though you were Russian, you would probably also be a, a, a bit impressed uh, of the power of that little man mm. uh, daring to stand there and be a leader and getting followers because he dares to do something different and he puts his own well-being at risk and because he believes in ideas and he is communicating it well so i will definitely nominate him well rick Hargrove, thank you so much for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure and I, you know, stunned at some of the things that you're achieving. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. Take care. Hope to meet you again. Oh, huge thanks to Ulrich. 
If you want to dig a little deeper into Authentic IC, do join us later this month for our webinar, where you can put your questions to our expert panel. We'll share the details in the session notes and on our social channels. Want to continue the conversation in the meantime? Do come and chat to us over on Twitter at Scarlet Abbott or drop us an email at hello at scarletabbott.co.uk. We'll see you next time for another dive into World Changes 2022. World Changes is a podcast by employee engagement consultancy Scarlet Abbott, hosted by L. Bradley Cox. Find out more at scarletabbott.co.uk.